Uh, we are taking a break this week from Matthew, and so I invite you to join me, 1 Corinthians 11. In fact, we're going to uh, get pretty much all of our scripture reading done in this first portion, and there'll be actually four sections. The first one is the longer one uh, that we'll look at, and it's, it's familiar to us, and so we'll look at that. As you're turning there, uh, I forgot a couple of people that have really been very helpful to us hanging around here, he's going to put you on a camera, okay? And so up in the crow's nest up there, we got Riley, and so that's uh, the mini-me of Brandon, uh, his son, and so he's done an awesome job on a lot of different levels. And, and where's Don? Is Don here today? In the following instructions, I do not commend you. So this ties back to verse 2. Paul says, I commend you. He's writing a letter uh, to a church that he spent a year and a half in. He started a church and ministered to them, built that up for a year and a half, heavily invested. He's moved on to start other churches. Now he's writing a letter back to them that's doing two things. He's answering questions that they've sent to him, and he's sharing some concerns that he has. So he commends them on continuing some of the traditions that he had taught them, and they kept those going. But now verse 17, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Why? This is an amazing half verse. This is shocking. Think of the ramifications of this. When you come together, we've not been able to come together, but the Corinthian church, he says, because I can't commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better. Let that sink in. Imagine a church of believers coming together, and when they leave, it was like, you know, we are no better. It it was no better that I went to church. But the second part of of that, the last part says, but for the worse. Did you catch that? Not only was it not for the better that we met, it was actually for the worse. We'd have been better off staying home. Wow. Why? Verse 17. For in the first place... Here's the first problem. When you come together as a church, great, you're coming together, but when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. We know from early in the book, some are following Paul and some are following Apollos, some are following Peter, some are following, you know, Jesus in general is their idea. And he says, I'm hearing all this division that is among you, and your gatherings are only reinforcing the divisions. The end of verse 18 says, and I believe it in part, for, and I don't understand the full ramifications. Verse 19, he says, I think those who are genuine among you may be recognized. In other words, what he's saying is there's so many problems in, their, in your church, there does need to be some factions because some people often you don't need to be going with them. They need to be very clear that they're out of step. So yes, there are some. It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. You catch that? That what you think you're doing? You've not been doing Pause right there. Meals together. They regularly have meals together. That's awesome. Wonderful, but now back to verse 20, he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. By the time you get to the Lord's Supper, you're not observing the Lord's Supper because of what's happened before that. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. Over here, somebody 
too much of something. And then here's these that apparently come in later and they don't have as much means and they're doing without because these have scarfed it all down real quick. Apparently on purpose. Verse 22. Verse 22. Can I pause right there? What he's saying is, hey, your meals together, newsflash, not about the food. About our Wednesday nights that we do here, because we do that not in, under these current circumstances, but very normally we do that on Wednesday night. didn't say that. real quick very greedily verse 22 again do you not have houses to eat and drink in or do you despise the church of God the church is people it's not a building again he's heavily rebuking do you guys despise the church the people of God and you're humiliating certain, but I think what Paul is writing here predates Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. me about the Last Supper, verse 23, I received from the Lord. Passover meal, and when he had given, Paul is saying, the Lord's taught me that he did this, when he study note adds the tone there this is Now watch, as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He doesn't necessarily say how often you're supposed to drink it. And the early church apparently had patterns of very, very frequently. But in Corinthians' case, it's almost as if they did it too frequently. It became just old hat, empty religion. So again, this cup is the new covenant my blood. Do this, here's the command again, as often as you drink it, it doesn't say how often in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, not every time you eat bread in general, but as often as you eat this bread, this particular ceremony that we're 
taking part in today, and drink this cup, what are we doing? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Keep proclaiming his death until he comes. And then the sobering warning part. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, that one, not just drinks in general or eats bread in general, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. In other words, guilty of mocking the sacrifice for sin. Therefore, Paul says in verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, and guys, again, I haven't studied that out, and it would probably come down to opinion there. If someone eats and drinks without discerning the body, obviously without discerning the body of the lost, but also could be discerning the body of Christ that is the church. Look at the verse again, verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Don't do that. That is why many of you, Paul just tells them straight up, 8 Corinthians, that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died because you're abusing the partaking of the Lord's Supper. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. I want to notice three things about communion this morning. Number one, again, we'll split our message. Number one, I'm not going to say this is, I'm going to say it's maybe the secondary meaning of communion But I don't mean it to be like a a distant way down the line. It is a very important part of what we're doing here. So number one, communion celebrates Christian unity. Communion, what are we doing? We're celebrating Christian unity. Communion. Common unity. In my Bible, it's one page back. Would you flip back just a little bit? Here's our second passage already. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Go back just one chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we're talking about the common unity of the Christian faith, those who are true Christians. This is a celebration. What we're doing is celebrating our commonness, our unity together. Verse 16, Paul again, before he gets to this longer explanation, chapter 11, he even starts hinting of it. The cup of blessing, the cup of blessing that we bless. He asks a question. Is it not So here's part of the meaning already. We know what he says in chapter 11 is is the meaning, but here he's already giving another part of the meaning. Hey, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Again, I grew up on the King James. The King James uses the word communion. That's where we get it from. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a communion, a participation in the blood of Christ? Isn't that what it's about? Isn't that what it's picturing? The bread that we break, is it not a communion, a participation? I have a part in that, in the body of Christ. And he summarizes by saying, because there is one body, we who are many are one body. So there's one, I'm sorry, because there's one bread, Jesus says that he is the bread of life. Because there's only one bread of life, one bread, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Real quick, let me mention this. This will be a shorter point. When we were talking about doing this two, a couple months ago, really, thinking that, boy, when we come back, we'll probably have communion. When we're going to miss Easter, and would have normally done it in that time setting. But now we'll do it when we come back. Guys, I had no idea what would be going on in our country. Um, I'm 50. Again, I was born in 1970. This is now 2020. Some of you have lived a lot longer than I have. I thought of Mrs. Maggie, who's lived basically twice as long as I have. She has seen 10 decades. I've seen five. In my five, I I probably really started paying attention uh, when I was about 12 or 13. I have never seen anything like literally what's going on in our country like at this two-week moment. Our country is being torn apart. Our nation is being torn apart, not just by a pandemic, but by hatred. And I thought about this. I think the hatred has always been there.
in politics and delving into it. I have no desire to go into that. Guys, I don't remember ever a time in our country where politics is so vicious as it is right now on all sides. I mean, it's just, it's, it's horrible. Hatred, racism, that is obviously very front burner right now. Racism, again, it is broader than what's being focused on right now, but that is definitely being, being taken place. What do we have right now? We have violent protesting going on. I'm not talking about protesting that is allowed in our country. Praise the Lord. We live in a country where it, it's, you can lawfully protest but I'm talking about violent protests, hatred, the political scene. Again, all of the racism. Guys, it's, it's out of bounds. And it's not to discourage you. You can pass all the laws you want. It's not going to get better in this life. It sets his kingdom up. That's the only hope. You can't pass laws and make people love you. Okay, now that the law says I have to love you, I now love you. I want the best for you. That's just not the case. You cannot legislate harmony and love. We want that. We're in a mess. But in the midst of this, of all days, I am really glad that we're going to partake something, and the whole service is dedicated to something that is supposed to show how that we, who have put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, have taken part of His body, His body on the cross for our sins, His blood being shed for our sins. And so we have this commonality among us. We share in the blood and in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned a while ago that the Corinthians had love feasts. That's the idea. It, was, it became known as love feasts. Acts chapter 2, not, you'll not see it on the screen, but it says that the early church continued steadfastly in what things? What were they really motivated to do? What did they do when they met together? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, and in fellowship and in breaking of bread. They ate meals together and in prayer. They prayed together. They fellowshiped together. They ate meals together. Apparently at the end of the meals they listed is the apostles' doctrine. And so can I just say this? I mean this nicely. We need to make a big deal about the Lord's Supper and about communion. But at the same time, though not commanded, these love feasts were definitely exemplified in the early church. And so I've concluded, churches ought to eat together often. Let me say it again. Churches should eat together often. You're like, right, 4th of July, we do that on that Sunday, and then we have that Sunday in November, they're around Thanksgiving. No, 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 no. Churches should eat together often. You say, well, what, what should be our plan? Okay, right now, the only times we eat together in the course of a year is only about 35 to 40 times a year. How many of those have you been to? So I'm not going to be, you know, just all positive and all that. Can I just say, our fellowship hall on Wednesday nights when we have meals, unless someone is providentially hindered, that thing should be packed out like all the time. It should just be packed out. And then somebody may say, well, my work schedule, I understand that. That may be the case. But if there's a person that's like, ah, I just don't want to go. Or if, you're, if you do this, oh, I like that meal, I'm going to go for that. Or, eh, I don't like that this week. I'm not doing it. Can I repeat something I said earlier? It's never about the food. It's not about the food. Do you know we have folks that don't eat the food. They eat afterward, but they're there for the fellowship. Do you know we have some because of their digestive system. They bring their own food. And likewise, somebody may say, I can't afford that food. You're going to eat at home. You could bring that and bring it here. And if you say, I'm not going to be able to eat at home, we can't afford even to eat at home, then you need to let me know you come eat mine. Seriously, you come eat mine. We need to be fellowshipping a whole lot more. We're going to get along together better, and I'm going to care more about someone if I'm eating with them and fellowshipping with them unless, unless we do what they did. We never, we never need to let our meals degenerate to what theirs became. Their meals, you say, Jeff, I do come. Praise the Lord. Their meals devolved into selfish expressions. Apparently, again, the wealthier would come in because they had the good food and more food, and they would scarf it down real quick. you got to remember, the weekend wasn't invented yet. And so as they would come, this was probably, I don't know that they met early in the morning. Maybe they did. Probably some slaves and very poor people were coming later. And so the point of 1 Corinthians 11 is not that everybody has to wait until, is everybody here that's coming because nobody can eat until everybody? That's not the point. The point is there's no sharing going on. People didn't want to share, and so some are going hungry. Others are eating way too much, and Paul is rebuking them for that. Again, it's never about the food. It's about the fellowship. And so what happened here, in their 
gatherings, it just devolved into these cliques and groups. That's what they were doing. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 4. Go there very quickly. Ephesians 4. I'm not going to delve all into this. We're just going to get the dynamic of these six verses. Ephesians 4 verse 1. Paul says, I therefore. So we're supposed to have this unity and this commonness. We all have part in, in the body of Christ. This is what communion partly is about. Paul says, I therefore a prisoner, so we know he's in jail, for the Lord. He's in in jail for the Lord, for the cause of Christ. He says, I urge you. So this is a different letter. This is six chapters long. It's been doctrine, 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 heavy doctrine for three chapters. And now for three chapters, he's going to really make it practical and livable. Verse 1, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk. So grace for you. I urge you to walk, like live out in a manner which you have been called. All this theology and doctrine, I want you to live it out. I want you to live out what you've been hearing, all of this stuff. Well, what would that look like? Make your life match and fit and and be a worthy fit uh, to what's going on. Verse 2, what would it look like? With all humility and gentleness, the idea of meekness. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, bearing with, you're going to need some of that, you're going to need some endurance, and you're going to need some forgiveness of people, and you're going to need some putting up with other people's trespasses. Hey, we're, we're people. We're going to offend each other. So here's what he's saying right there in verse 2. How are we going to be able to match all this theology? We're going to live in such a way that we think with humility. We think about the Lord before ourselves. We think about other people before ourselves. And then gentleness means Power under control. In other words, I have my rights, but I'm not... Everybody's about their rights these days. I'm not coming to the church worried about my rights. I'm worried about your rights. And then he says, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Look at verse 3. It's so key. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit that we're similar. No, we already have a bond and a unity in the Spirit. We need to be eager to maintain it. Eager, not like, okay, I'm willing to maintain the unity. No, eager, doing what it takes to maintain the unity. Can I just interject right here? I'm so thankful. To my knowledge, I just don't know of factions and divisions in our church. Satan is real and devil is real, and they're going to try to work their way in. I know that's going to happen. And attempts have been made. To my knowledge, we don't have any huge situations going on. We need to keep that, keep maintaining. Look at verse 4. Why? Paul says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith. He keeps using this word over and over and over. Why do we need to strive for this unity? Because there's one body, there's one spirit. We have one hope. Verse 5 again, one Lord. One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. We are called to eagerly maintain. All of us. Everybody catch what I'm saying? If you have put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are literally all part of the same and one body. We all have the same Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that's in you is the same Holy Spirit that's in me. He says we have the same Let me find the next one in the order. We have the same destination. We're literally all going to the same destination. We have the exact same Lord. Our Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. We're part of his body, but now, yes, he's the Lord. And if I'm following the Lord as my master and I'm obeying him and you're obeying him, then we will never have division among ourselves. 
When you find Christians at odds and out of harmony with each other, then at least one of them is at odds and out of harmony with the Lord Jesus Christ. We have one Lord. We have one baptism. We have one faith, one set of beliefs. Guys, that doesn't mean we all believe the exact same things psychologically and politically and all of that. It means the major doctrines of Christianity, we have one faith. We have one belief in us. And we've all been baptized into Christ and into the body of Christ. And we all have one God and Father of all. Would you write this down? Because of that, the church, and we could say church itself, and especially when we observe the Lord's Supper and communion and at love feast and Wednesday night fellowship meals and all of the above. The church is to be the one place where physical differences, and we have physical differences. All I have to do is look around. We have some physical differences among us and social differences. We have social differences among us. Guys, those are supposed to be laid aside, put to the side. So how does that flesh itself out? I'll just say it this way. I've said it before. The Lord's Supper and communion is the one place where there truly is no rich and poor. Does everybody understand that? When we come to church, when we're fellowshipping together and in this setting, and the way we interact with each other, there are no rich people and poor people. You say, Jeff, why is that? Listen carefully. We're all rich. We're all rich. There's no attractive and unattractive Jeff, why is that? Because we're all being made spotless and without blemish. And we've all been beautified and we're all going to be glorified. There is no employer, not in this setting. I know when you go out there, you do have to work. There's no employer and that's my employee and we go to the same church and we know, hey, no, in here, it's the same. Why? We're all servants of the Lord. Very obvious needs to be stated though. There is no, there are no white people and Asian people, and Peruvian people, and South American people, and Indian people, and black people, right? There's none of those. There's no biracial people. Why? We are literally all a race of people, citizens of heaven. There is no intelligent. These are the intelligent, and then this is the slow. No, none of us are intelligent in comparison with the Lord, and we all have access to the mind of Christ. So there's none of that going on. There's no old and young you say, Jeff, got those backwards. Okay. There's no young and old, right? Not that, however way you want to look at that. Listen, we're all going to live forever. Amen. All that have put their faith and trust in Christ. And there's no Jew and Gentile. There's no Jew and Gentile. We're all the body and the bride of Christ. And we've trusted the Lord because of that. We, guys, listen to me. The bond we have is so much stronger and more substantial and longer lasting than all the things that are being put out there in our country, how people are identifying themselves. Some people identify themselves by their gender, right? I'm a, and that literally when they think of themselves, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a dude or I'm a woman. Okay, that's serious? Is that serious? Good for you. You've, you've narrowed it down to 40 to 60%. Awesome. That's, is that really how you think? Or I am, and they think of their skin color. Seriously? You know you're not going to be identified by your skin color in the next life. You know you're not going to be identified by that gender in the next life. Oh, no, no, Jeff. I'm an American. Praise the Lord. I am too. Is that seriously how you think of yourself? I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat. You know there are people in our country, literally that's what comes to their mind when they think of themselves. I'm an American. Who's a this? And it's like those distinctions will not matter in the next life. I'm a Baptist, brother. Now that, it isn't going to matter in the next life. We don't identify ourselves by these things. We have something far greater. Number two, communion, as Paul told us in 1 Corinthians 11, celebrates Jesus' death. And he says, as often as you do this, you do show the Lord's death. Jesus says, I want you to remember me. So would you go? Here's our other passage, and this will be the one where the other points come from. Would you go to Romans chapter 5? And as soon as I'm finished reading these eight verses, our worship team is going to come back up and we'll sing a couple of songs together. Let's just read the text right now and then the worship team will come. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse number 1. Therefore, so we're talking about what's the point, what we're heading to. Therefore, since, this is, this is awesome theology. Therefore, since we have been justified 
by faith. He's been hammering in chapter 4 this faith thing. It has to be by faith. And as we said last week, I believe it was, it's not just faith and faith and faith in nothing. I'm looking not on the screen, but back in Romans chapter 3, verse 21, Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So if you say, I'm going to earn my righteousness by keeping the law, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. You say, what's this other kind of righteousness? Listen carefully. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So it's a very specific kind of faith. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so now, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have, and here comes a list of things, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the word through keeps coming up over and over. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's not going to be on the screen, but if you have your Bible open, would you look down at verse 11? Again, I'm not reading that far in a moment. Verse 11, notice, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. The Lord's been impressing upon my mind lately the idea of this word, because I Romans was my devotions recently. Sorry, that's probably why we're here this morning. This word through, it's occurring to me that God the Father and I are always, always connected by Jesus Christ. That, that really is, it, it's like all that. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, all of the great spiritual blessings are in Christ. Romans chapter 1 verse 5, Paul says that it is through Christ that we have this grace and apostleship. Every, again, there's God the Father, and there's you, and always, if you have a relationship with God, it's always going to be through Jesus Christ. He's always the buffer between you and God. You really want him being between you and God. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. So you say, who does that? Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. How can we do that? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, scarcely will that happen, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God, so this is verse 7, there's this righteous person, maybe, and there's this good person, maybe someone will die for them. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Worship team, would you come? And as they're coming, would you write this thought in your notes? This passage gives us six, at least six. You, you may find seven, eight. This passage gives us at least six benefits that the death of the Lord provides for us. And so what we want to do is say, and again, I'm not reading all the way through verse 11. Had we looked at verse 11, we'd find a couple of more. Hey, guys, everybody listen. I know you wrote that note. What does the death of Christ do for us that we need to celebrate this this morning by partaking of a piece of bread and a cup of juice? What, what does it do for us? I want to give you six things. Not even included is this thought. If you're a Christian, the Lord has already freed you from slavery to sin. When we sin, it's because we have chosen to. An unsaved world can't stop sinning. Not only that, but chapter 7 of Romans says that he's going to deliver us from even the current battle that we have. With, it's not our boss, but we do struggle against sin. One day that battle will be gone through Christ. Look with me if you, again, if you would. Romans chapter 5. Uh, let's work our way through these things. I hope you caught them already. What did the death of the Lord do for us that we should celebrate this and remember Literally the night, Jesus is in the upper room. He's saying, guys, what I do tomorrow morning is going to change your life, your eternity. Always remember. So Christians, join me today in remembering what Christ has done. Look at verse number one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, number one, we have peace with God. Would you write that down? What do we have? What has salvation done for us? We have peace with God. 
You know, there are some folks that hear that idea and their inner thought, whether they would ever say it consciously, is the following. I don't really need peace with God. I'm not out of peace with God. And they may say, I'm not really a Christian, but I'm not really against God. I'm just kind of in the middle. They see themselves as neutral. Do you understand there is no neutral? I'm going to say some things that I say all the time, and because of that, you get used to hearing them, and it's easy to easy in, easy out. But what I'm about to say would be very, very offensive to some people, but it is absolutely the truth according to the Word of God. All we would have to do is go back to chapter 3 of Romans. Can we all agree on the following? All people outside of Jesus, all people are born sinners, which means even if they've not committed an act of sin, they haven't acted out, give it time, because we were all born with a nature that loves sin, a nature that loves what God hates, what offends God. We love it. We gravitate to it very naturally. We never have to be trained to sin. All of us are in that. Furthermore, I will say, all of us in time, little child, chooses to trample on the laws of God, even laws that we don't see them in print, the laws of God that are printed on our being and our conscience that we know that is just wrong. Nobody has to tell me, I know that's wrong. We still do it. All of us have trampled on the laws of God. Well, God is a just judge. As the just judge, he can't just ignore sin. So he has to punish. Listen carefully. He must punish sin, and God knows how to punish sin. Don't ever think that God's withholding forbearance means he's okay with sin. No, he's not. God must punish sin. That, coupled with our sinfulness, puts us on on the opposite side of God as God's enemies, And there's this thing that has come between us. It is called sin. Sin has separated us from God. We are his enemy. He's our enemy. We're his enemy. I'm going to tell you this right now. We're always going to lose that battle. Mankind, this is the greatest mismatch in the history of mankind. I mean, you're talking about us. What if we all band together? We have no shot against God, and God is going to judge the sins of man. Enter Jesus Christ. Jesus comes between warring man and God. There's the problem is sin. Christ takes the sin, puts it on himself, steps between us and God at war. What happens? We hate him. We, we, you said, right, those Romans and those Jews. No, we, our sins, we hate him and crucified him. And God the Father took, if you're going to take up that sin, then all of the wrath of my judgment that was going to be on them, if you're going to carry that on a cross, then God the Father's wrath is going to be poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that dynamic allows for justification. A long note that I want you to write in a minute. I want you to hear it first. A short version. It's a long note, but in comparison to the context, what is justification? If I ask you right now, hey, somebody, and I point it to you, would you stand and tell us what in the world, what is justification? It actually has a couple of parts, so let's hear it, number one. To go to heaven, you have to have righteousness. You have to have righteousness. But since we have no righteousness, justification allows God, it's the process where God accepts the death of Jesus Christ on the cross as a sufficient payment for the sins of those who will put their faith in Jesus. That is a part of justification. So God, the Father, you have to have righteousness. We have none. God, the Father, sees our sin. He accepts Jesus' death for our sins, so that removes the sin. But listen, technically, we still have no righteousness. So what justification allows to happen is... When you and I stand at judgment on the scales of justice, and over here is the demands and the laws of God and the perfection of God is here, and that's very weighty. And so what we have to do is get on this with our righteousness and try to balance the scale. Guys, whatever, all the good you've ever done, you put it on that scale, it is like dust. But justification, with our sins now removed, God the Father lets the Lord Jesus Christ get on the scale with us. The Lord Jesus Christ wraps you with his righteousness. If you'll put your faith in him, his righteousness is counted in your column. And then all of a sudden, you have a righteousness that was not your own. And what that allows is two things. 
We always say, then God declares us righteous. Absolutely. And God makes the rules. And when God says, you're righteous because of Christ's righteousness wrapping up in you, then that's settled and done. But the other thing it does, this lets God not only declare us righteous, but now I can treat you as a righteous. If you're a Christian, God treats you as a righteous person. So Jeff, what does that mean? You're no longer the enemy of God. You have now, no longer the enemy he has to punish. You are now the child of God that he blesses. A wonderful quote that a group of men and I went through a book written by Neil Anderson years ago, a couple of, well, we finished about a year ago, I think, maybe less. I want to let you write that note because I want you to taste what Neil Anderson writes. But you're going to have to write fast because I can't wait too long. So here's the point. We now have, what did Jesus' death do for us? Why do we celebrate? Christ's death allows you to have peace with God. And it's not just a cessation of fighting. You are now the child of God he's going to bless. Anderson writes the following. He says, many Christians try desperately to become something they already are. Say it again. Many Christians, I've been guilty. Veteran Christians, listen up. New Christians especially, listen up. Anderson says, many Christians try desperately to become something they already are. Work it, work it, become something. What are you trying to become? He doesn't even give the word, so can I ex- provide the word? Do you all know what the word is? It starts with the letter F. They're trying. Many Christians try desperately to become something they already are. What is it? We're forgiven. We're already forgiven. But we're trying to become. He continues. He says, so, see if this has ever been you. So often people will be aware of past sins. Will have confessed. And he says, perhaps many times. And will have forsaken them. I mean, that's, that's it right there, guys. We become aware of sin and they've confessed and forsaken it. Repented of it. Not doing it anymore. Yet they still have nagging thoughts of, and I'm jumping ahead a couple of words, condemnation. They've been convicted. They've confessed. They've turned from it, not continued to do that thing. But some past sin is just like haunting. Does everybody know what the problem is? What is there a lack of here? It also starts with the letter F. There's a lack of faith. Guys, if that is you, if that's you in the future, I'm talking to myself as well. we got to let that go. Did you get convicted? Did you confess it to the Lord? Have you turned from it? Well, then he's already forgiven it. You might as well let it go because God has. We're trying to get what we already are forgiven. We already have peace. Write this down. Peace with God is not some tranquil feeling that may come or go. Peace with God is a fact. It's just a fact. You either have it or you don't. I'm not talking about peace from God or peace with uh, peace of God. Those are separate. That can come or go. We all want the peace from God and the peace of God. This is peace with God. You either have it or you don't. Here's the question that you need to ask. It's not, do I feel at peace with God? Hey, I hope you do. If you don't feel at peace with God this morning, uh, here's the question. Are you at peace with God? If you are, it's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, notice in verse number two. We have access to grace. What did Christ's death ever do for us? It gave us peace and it gives us access to grace. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith. That's key. You have to have it by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have access to grace. Can I say it this way? Access to and grace means these unearned favors of God. Grace is the unearned. I haven't worked for it. God's just giving gifts. God's just giving favors. I don't know about you guys. I want some of that. Uh, where's the favors and where's the gifts? I want some of that. Christian, hear me. You have access to the gifts and the favors of God. How do you get to it? To have access to grace is to have access to God himself. I could reverse that and say access to God is access to grace and access to grace is access to God. You have access, Christian, through Christ. You remember in the Old Testament... What represented specifically the presence of God? We're talking about having access to God. What was the presence of God represented by? The Shekinah glory that was between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant. 
Y'all remember that? Where was that kept? That was kept behind a curtain in the holy of holies, the holiest place. Outside of that is the holy place. Outside of that is the temple area where the sacrifices would be made. Then on out would be the courtyard. So in other words, as you went to the temple, it got more and more exclusive the further you went in. So you would have this courtyard of the Gentiles. You and I could go in there, but then you can't go any farther. Only Jews can go in there. And then they'd have another wall where Jewish women could not go further than that. They can go further than Gentiles, but the Jewish women had to stop here. Only Jewish men could go in. And then there hit a point where only Levites, one of the tribes, could go in there. And then eventually, the closer that you get, only certain Levites that were of the priestly tribe of Aaron, only they could go in there. And then only a few of them could work and go into the holy place. But the holy of holies, that's the most exclusive. That's where God's... You understand what I'm saying? In the Old Testament, you want to have access, I mean, true access... Face-to-face with God, with the presence of God, well, that's in the Holy of Holies. One person. Oh, so just one. That's exclusive. No, no, no. One person. One day. One day. Fast forward to 2020. Because of the Lord Jesus Christ dying on the cross, the moment he died on the cross, the veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies literally rent in two because now, Hebrews says, there's this new curtain between us and God and all believers, yes, it's still exclusive, but all believers can get to God if you'll go through the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, I want to get to God. Well, there's Christ. You've got to go through him. It's no longer just one person. All believers Get in on that. It's as though Christ is escorting. You want to get where the grace is at? The Father's where the grace is at. You want some grace? You need some grace? Come up here and start asking him for things. Ask him for what you need. Ask him for things you want. Go ahead and do it. Jesus says back in Matthew, uh, we should ask more. Ask and seek and knock. Number three. Notice still in verse number two. What do we have because of Christ? We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Why do I need to remember the death of the Lord? Because his death. Now notice verse 2 again. Through him we have also, look at the verse. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice. Again, I'm looking at the experts in my ESV Bible here. It puts there this idea that let us rejoice. What this seems to be saying is that we can do this and we should be doing this, but not all Christians do this. So look at the middle part of the verse. And what else does it do? And we rejoice. We can, we should, let us rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Doesn't that make you guys excited? You're like, uh, what are we getting excited about? Hope of the glory of God. You know what I find? That doesn't move the needle on most Christians. monitor there just doesn't move the needle you know why I'm going to tell you why and I'm sorry I can't help you today I don't have the vocabulary I don't have the experience the reason most Christians don't get too excited about the second part by the way of these six things this is not the least one this might be the greatest one you're like, wait, hold on, wait, wait, which one is this one now? I might ought to pay attention. We can rejoice. Let us rejoice in hope, guaranteed hope, of the glory of God. Here's why we don't get that excited, because we don't understand the glory of God. You say, then what is it? Guys, all I can do is maybe give you write a sentence and go home and think about it. Write this down. The glory of God here means everything about God unfiltered. I think that's what this means. Everything about God, unfiltered. All I've ever had, can I, can I just, from personal experience, not trying to sound spiritual, I hope you guys have had some of the same experiences. I've had them too infrequently. The best moments of my life have been certain moments with God. They are the best of times, the best feeling, the best experiences. But all I've ever had are filtered experiences with God. And that's all you've ever had. None of us have ever seen God. Guys, I love looking at beautiful things. I love looking at beautiful things. There's some beautiful things, man. They just kind of like, man, that is awesome. I love listening to beautiful sounds. I love listening. There are certain sounds. If you've picked, say, if you could go back and really rank and listen to them all again and pick the top ten things you've ever heard, they probably moved you in such a way where, like, you, you probably stood and clapped or you wept or you laughed and, and just... All of the above, maybe all within one minute of each other. 
I love powerful, wonderful sounds. I love things that taste really good. I love things that feel really good emotionally and physically. I love that. I love things that smell good. You say, Jeff, what's your point? Guys, the glory of God is God unfiltered, all that is God unfiltered. Everything that I just listed are just tiny little tastes that God gives us as a little morsel to whet our appetite of some of the things that's going to happen through eternity when we get to heaven, when we experience the glory of God totally unfiltered. Can you imagine the beauty of God unfiltered, the majesty of God unfiltered, the power, the wisdom, His love, His holiness, His creativity, again, the fragrance of God, the pleasure of just being around God, the way he can make you feel, the taste, the smells, the sounds, all of it, unfiltered. That's something to get excited about. Paul says that he got to go see the third heaven at some point. Before he wrote Romans, he got to go see the third heaven. Third heaven is heaven, heaven, the current version of it. Guys, all I can say is it changed his life. I like to say it this way. It ruined Paul from ever loving this world again. He just wasn't that impressed by this world anymore because he saw that world but here's what we know God's glory gives heaven its glory and Paul was wowed by the third heaven but Paul is trying to tell us tell those people to get excited about the glory of God that is coming their way go ahead Christians you should start rejoicing why because of the next sentence that's on the screen if we understood this it would change our life here it is very simple Christians are guaranteed to fully experience the unfiltered glory of God through eternity. I'm telling you, is that on the screen? Yes. That last sentence. I'm going to promise you, if we understood what that sentence means, that would affect the way we live our life. It would change our life. It would change our whole worship habits. It would cause us to rejoice every day. No matter what happens, I'm rejoicing daily in the Lord Jesus Christ. I would be worshiping him wholeheartedly because of him making that sentence possible. Because of Christ, I'm going to be experiencing the unfiltered glory of God throughout all of eternity. Number four. This one takes three verses, and I'll not dissect it all. But he writes, what the death of Christ does is allows us that we can rejoice in sufferings. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Hope does not put us to shame. Hey, guys, if I were sovereign, which I'm not, and if you were sovereign over your life, if I were sovereign over mine, here's what I would do. I would make sure I was always healthy, like 100%. I would change a few things about my body, right? And you would too. You would too. Don't judge me. We would give ourselves lots of health, and we'd be very wealthy. Like, more than we could ever, not just more than we would ever spend, more than we would ever spend, plus some more so that we have security. We would make ourselves super wealthy, always healthy, and we would be very, very popular. If we were sovereign, we would be very pop, we'd make ourselves popular, and we'd be very successful, and lots of pleasure. Lots of pleasure, if I was sovereign. And then there's this guy that went to the third heaven, and he's writing about... Rejoicing and suffering. This man, I'm going to tell you, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ, I, I, I think a lot of Paul. Because he seems, after seeing the third heaven, he seems to have lived in a way where he invites hardship. Bring it on. It's a chance to show Christ is more valuable than anything here because I've already got a glimpse of what's coming. And the heaven that he saw is not the final version. We're going to get a better version of the heaven than what he saw. This man just like, bring it on. It's an opportunity so I'm thinking, I have a certain man in mind that's been going through some things, and a lady in our church, both of them older, one's older than, than the other, but I'm thinking of a couple of people in our church been going through some hardships. Can I tell you this? You can rejoice in suffering, but you're going to have to do it by faith. You have to believe what this passage says. It is very unnatural. If you're taking notes, write the following thoughts quickly. Suffering is inevitable. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Jeff, but what if I do better? I'm going to live really, really good. I'm going to live so good, I won't have any tribulation. Paul says, yea, and all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Okay, but what if I don't really go public? I'm going to live really, really, really good, and I'm not going to go public necessarily with my faith, and I'm going to put off persecution. You still live in a body that has a sin curse on it. You're going to die. 
I'm sorry, suffering and trials are inevitable, but they serve God's purposes. I don't have time to develop this thought, but here's, this is what makes it so strong. What Paul is telling us here is more than peace in suffering. To, to, to apply this, I need you to think right now, what has been the most recent trialsome thing in your life? The most recent hardship? What's pressing against you? Where are you feeling the pressure? And now answer this question. Did you come up with something? Like really make yourself like, okay, where am I feeling the pressure? What is in my life that I would probably change if I was sovereign? Are you feeling that? What's going on? There is one option, and this is really, really good, and that is having peace in the midst of suffering. God's peace in the midst of suffering. Paul is not describing peace in the midst of suffering. Paul is describing rejoicing and having joy because of suffering. You say, what? Yes! What are you excited about? Some pain is coming. Some suffering and some trials. Why are you getting excited? Have you lost your mind? You need checked into an institute. No. Knowing. And by the way, I'm not telling you guys that I'm good at this. I started reading this and studying this early in the week, and I think Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and even Saturday, the Lord's like, okay, let's test you out. And he just started letting stuff happen. It's like, okay, Lord, yay, yay. You're working. You're building character. You're making endurance. But if I could really see it, God is at work. He's making us, here's what the hard part, at least a distance runner or a guy working out in the gym, they can see the results or they know that it's coming, right? It's like, hey, a 5K used to be tough and now I'm doing a 10K and now I'm doing a half marathon. Look at the results I'm seeing. Or the guy, you know, he's working out or she's working out. And it's like, look, I'm dropping pounds and I'm adding on good pounds. I can see it. Here's what's tough is when you're in suffering and trial and you cannot see the immediate effect, that's where we have to by faith say that because Jesus died on the cross, God is at work and he is bringing good. He is making me more like Christ. He is melting away the part of me that is not like Christ. He's building perseverance and character and hope and hope will not let us be ashamed. You Christians, when eternity comes, you're going to look like fools. Oh, no, we're not. We will not look like fools. We'll look like the wisest people in the history of the world because the tone of the New Testament is you cannot possibly think of heaven as glorious as it will be, and you cannot think of God as glorious as he already is. It's not possible. Number five comes in verse five. We have received the Holy Spirit. You'll notice I have no subnotes under that because we talked about that back on Easter. Verse 5 says, And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us because of Christ. All I'll say is this again, Jesus is key. His death on the cross makes it possible for us to have the Holy Spirit because He's called the Holy Spirit. I can't have the Holy Spirit with sin. So the Lord Jesus' death takes away the sin, and then the whole, even the Old Testament people, their sins weren't totally paid for, totally removed. They were covered by animal sacrifices and faith in the obedience of the command of God, but they were not removed. The death of Christ allows our sins to be removed, and now we have the Holy Spirit. They did not have that in the Old Testament, and he does many, many things. If you don't know what those are, go back and look at the Easter message. Number six, we have received the love of God. And here's another one I can't develop. Verse 5, one more time. Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Here's a Christian. A Christian this morning in this room knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves them. It's been not trickled in, placed in. The love of God has been poured in, means lavishly. How does a Christian know that God loves them? Because verse 6 says, if you look at it with your eyes, for while we were still weak, morally weak, ladies and gentlemen, when you and I were morally weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Watch this again. When we were morally weak, when we were the ungodly enemies of God, here's the key, unable to stop sinning even if we wanted to, but really we didn't want to stop sinning. In that situation, God, who before he created you, knew what your sin was going to cost in the sacrifice of his son, already let you be created, and knowing that this great plan would send his son 
to earth to become a human being and still remain God and die on a cross and raise again the third day. God knows, why does that have to happen? Because of our sin. Look at verse 7 very quickly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Who's this righteous person? All I can decipher from this is it appears to be a person who is wrongly accused. They've been wrongly accused and they're apparently going to die because someone else is going to die in their place. Very, very rare does this happen. You say, then what's... All I can think is that person's wrongly accused. They're getting ready to die, but the truly guilty person steps forward and says, they didn't do it, it is me. Rarely will that ever happen. That is a rare, rare thing. Rarely for a righteous person. Hey, they're wrongly accused. They're righteous. Doesn't mean they're sinless before God. This good person, now that's different. This is a person that a that someone, a friend, views as so valuable to society, so valuable to this world that they say, they think, I would rather lose my life because the world needs you more than it needs me. I'm going to give my life for you. Guys, think of the, how many people do you know who have done that? Not like, oh, I would do it. No. How many people do you know personally that gave their life for a friend? Because the Bible teaches that's the strongest love. That's the strongest expression of love that we know. Raise your hand, if, by the way. Is anybody thinking of a person? Would you say, Brother Don, are we talking about Vietnam? Probably. That's typically where it happens is in war. Anybody else? We have one person in here who knows someone personally that gave their life for another person. Okay, right back there is a second person. I don't know anybody like that. Do you all understand? That's mankind's best. That's the best we have. Greater love has no man than this, than a man laid down his life for his friends. I'll die for my friend. That's the best. You say, so I guess that's what the Lord's talking about. He's dying for his friends. No, the point of all of this is verse 8. But God. You understand? We're taking notes. The point is that we're not righteous, nor are we good. And the Lord dies for us in that situation. It's not saying that we were wrongly accused. It's not saying we're so valuable and God's like, hey, you guys are so valuable. I'm going to give my son to die for you. This is an amazing kind of love. I mean, who does this? No one does this. I mean, rarely can you find a person step up when it's really their fault to step in for the righteous person who's been falsely accused. Rarely will you find a person give their life for a friend that they love so much. Rarely will you find that. That's the best we have. Who would die for their enemy? No one. I propose to you, if a human being died for their enemy, it would still not be anywhere near what the Bible's describing. But Why? Because when God sends his son, we're talking about an infinite God giving his son for insignificant enemies. Not just enemies. In, we don't matter. Why is, God, why are you doing this? Here's what I know. The love of God is real. It's been expressed to me. It's been poured into my heart. I know God loves me. Hey, I know there's somebody here right now. There's somebody in the last week you've in this room right now, you've probably thought, Lord, do you love me? Why are you letting that happen? Stop. Don't ever question the love of God. And you guys hold me to this. Don't ever let me question the love of God because it's already been settled. He's already done what none of us would ever do. He gave his son when we needed him the most. And he took hell on the cross for us. He took my hell. I supplied a lot of sin, and he paid for it all. And so this is the last thought. What does communion call for? It calls for self-examination. Would you flip back over to 1 Corinthians 11? After this, we'll have just a moment to allow the Holy Spirit to evaluate our lives because this calls for self-evaluation. Paul writes in verse 27, because this bread represents the body of Christ and this cup represents the blood of Christ, Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So what is communion this morning? In a moment, we'll take this bag and uh, we're going to sing a song just before that. I'm going to invite you. you. You have the elements if you want to partake. When you're finished, would you please put the elements back in that bag and um, not leave them scattered all over. So what does this mean? Let me first of all say that no one who is an unbeliever should partake of the Lord's Supper. You don't have to be a member of Grace View. Listen carefully. If you're not a Christian, then don't 
partake of this. You say, well, I got the packet and it might be kind of embarrassing. Don't do it. It would be inappropriate for you to partake of something that symbolizes the sacrifice for sin when you have rejected that sacrifice for sin. That's inappropriate. Don't do that. Furthermore, Paul warns even those of us who are Christians, don't just partake in an unworthy manner. Okay, don't partake in an unworthy manner. MacArthur writes, and I use this often, what is this unworthy manner? Listen, don't just partake ritualistically. In other words, indifferently, flippantly. Don't do that. Furthermore, going back to our first point this morning, don't partake, he writes, with a spirit of bitterness or unforgiveness. If you have bitterness and unforgiveness toward another Christian, don't partake. If you're holding on to something against them, Third, he writes this, it means to cling, this unworthy manner means to cling to one's known sin, not all the sins you don't even know about, but to cling to one's known sin with an unrepentant heart. So he says, for that reason, we need to examine ourselves in light of the Holy Spirit's guidance. So I want to invite you, would you bow your heads just for a moment, right where you're at, and our worship team will be coming, but I want to invite you to really concentrate Allow the Holy Spirit, just ask Him right now. Hey, we've not gathered in a long, long time. Would you invite the Holy Spirit? Lord, would you evaluate our lives? Just, you ask Him, the Holy Spirit, you know me. You know the life I've been living. Is there anything that is out of line? Are you holding a grudge against someone that you shouldn't have? They've sought your forgiveness and you haven't granted it. And you're holding a grudge then it's time for you to let that go and you need to confess that as sin and receive the Lord's forgiveness. Is anyone here, you're holding on not just to some bitterness or unforgiveness, but some pet sin, something you've looked at or listened to or thought, some wrong attitude, something with your feet where you've gone or something you've listened to, laughed at. Is that Whatever the Holy Spirit in your conscience is pricking your conscience, then don't harbor that sin. Forsake it. You say, Jeff, what do I do? The Holy Spirit's pointing out several things. Agree with God. Agree with God. <clears throat> Repent of it. And forsake it. Because I can tell you this. When you agree with God and repent and forsake, Jesus has already forgiven. You don't have to wait for forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'll allow you just a moment to let the Holy Spirit work.